Greg, as the year draws to a close and it's a time of reflection, uh, I want I wanted to I wanted to end the year on a bang, and not just the year, but the decade. Okay. And I thought I I have a I have an idea I have a concept that I hope you join me in, because I think this would be a great way to to celebrate the year in closing and then and set ourselves up for a fresh and new decade. I here's my plan. Here's my plan. Come Go December twentieth. All right. I'm gonna yeah. awaken in the morning, and 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 flip on Amazon Prime, and I'm gonna watch the report. Okay. All right. You know, not getting a lot of Oscar buzz, but I still think it's worth exploring. All right. Um, got decent reviews. And then I'm gonna switch over to Netflix, and I'm gonna watch mm-hmm. Marriage Story. And, and right. I, it's a little late. Like all the memes have kind of ruined it for me. But I'm I'm gonna I'm I'm gonna try to get through. Anyway, I, I see I see what you're, the journey you're taking me on. <laughs> yes, <laughs> and then I'm going to uh, uh, skip my way to the theater, and I'm going to catch uh, Star War Disney Star Wars: The Rise of the Skywalker. Yeah, and the, the Skywalker. Exactly. Yes, and this way I get just a bevy, a feast of Adam Driver. <laughs> Just three Adam Driver movies in one day. I don't know if I can handle it. It might drive a man to madness, but I think <laughs> it's worth exploring. I'm draw- I'm calling it Driver Mageddon. How's that? Does that scan? Does that work? I, 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 <laughs> or Adam Geddon? This, this bit is driving me crazy. Let me no. tell you. <laughs> so maybe you can comment on this because yeah, Adam Driver is obviously a very charismatic, very talented actor, mm-hmm. uh, and of the interminable debates going around Reddit and Twitter and whatever else. Um, the latest one to come up in, in all the promotions surrounding, as you said, three big movies, The Report, well, maybe not big, but three movies, <laughs> The Report, Marriage Story, and Star Wars, The Rise of Skywalker. People have been adjudicating whether Adam Driver's a sex symbol, like the man, mm. <laughs> the man of the era. And um, I, I was hoping you could comment on that. I mean, we've already settled the debate between the Marvel Cinematic Universe and Scorsese. Guess what? Scorsese wins. Um, (laughs) Scorsese wins all the time. Yeah, hands down. And so maybe you can adjudicate, is Adam Driver attractive? Yes. I mean, the clear answer is yes, obviously. Like, everyone remembers... You jumped on it immediately. Yeah, I mean, there there was no question in this man's heart, okay? Like, everyone remembers that, you know, that brief hit moment from The Last Jedi. Ooh, mm, bestow my heart. But remember, I'm 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 a veteran. Much like he is, I've been around since the day of girls when he was uh, stooping Lena Dunham, and boy howdy, was that just a, a romp for everybody involved. So, so I haven't seen much of. I've seen one episode of Girls, mm-hmm. and it, I think it was the pilot. That's the only. That was my introduction to him. Mm-hmm. As and, as for America as well. Yeah, and so he was he was playing an obnoxious New Yorker. So obviously my my impression of my first impression of him was colored. And then I also saw him on Inside Lewin Davis when he has when he's in about two minutes and has about two lines. And um just put, it plays the bass on a silly uh novelty song. So I don't that those are my first impressions. So I don't know like where where else I've seen his range because I don't think I don't think he's a charmer. I think he's very intense. I think he's very serious. No, and that's Which, what makes him such a fascinating actor and so sexy. It's the intensity. It's the smoldering intensity. You know he's going to make love to you hard. So that's why I think everyone's thirsty for him. That's why okay. I know I'm thirsty for him. But that's just right. me. <laughs> In this so, John, you like that? What about somebody more gentle? Like, I bet uh, John Boyega is a gentle lover. Mm, <laughs> Oscar he... Isaac also. If we're just going to talk Star Wars co-stars. Uh, I, absolutely. I bet these are, yeah. these are, I mean, these are more yeah. charmers. 
you go for a gelato date with John Boyega. But I mean, it's like, if you want someone who's going to give it to you all night long, you go Adam Driver, Greg. Come on. There's a reason I, why I he's fallen no, to the dark here's, side. Here's the thing. The mm. smirk of, say, Oscar Isaac, that's that's a look that'll say, like, hey, no. your needs come first. <sighs> no. <laughs> I just, no. I just, just the opposite. Adam Driver glowering. No. And it's like... Here's the thing. Adam yeah, Driver... It's earnest. You know exactly where he stands. With with Oscar Isaac, it's like he's lying to you. He's lying through his eyes. It's just, I don't trust him still, you know? He says he's what going out go? with the boys, but is he really? What are they really getting <laughs> up to? He has been in a few boys movies, I think. Uh, mm. Earlier this year, he was in Triple Frontier. Mm. And, uh, yeah. and don't forget the classic Ex Machina, you know, the classic Bachelor, oh, yeah, <laughs> Bachelor the boys. boys weekend movie. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to tear up this dance floor. <laughs> yeah, just a couple of guys hanging out. Hey, yeah. I got a stripper for the weekend. Check her out. <laughs> oh, no, she's gained sentience. Ah! That's what that movie's about, right? Exactly, yes. It. Yeah, it's about strippers becoming self-aware. All right. Got it. I mean, John, that was an unfair characterization of strippers, okay? <laughs> just because they dance go-go go, 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 does not make them uh, hose no, okay? <laughs> mm, thank you. Thank you. How dare you? I mean, there's so much philosophy in the lyrics of this hip hop that is just sadly goes unexplored. I I disagree, John. I feel like we've we've been there for a while. Um, mm. As we'll get to, I thought you wanted to sum up the year in either another moment of pop culture, like what was your favorite TV show, what was your favorite song. Mm. Oh, we'll get to the best song of the decade at the end of this uh, particular episode. You have that oh, to look forward oh, to. Oh, oh, uh, Greg. But for geez. now, hello, welcome. We're the aspiring snobs, like, which is a terrible title, I grant you. But um, <laughs> the idea of the show is that we aspire to cinematic snobdom. There's a lot of movies that we haven't seen yet that are typically viewed as required uh, viewing. I'm going to say viewing again. (laughs) They're typically seen as required viewing, and so that's what we want to do. We want to catch up on a movie that either one of us or both of us hasn't seen yet. And this is one that belongs, that has sat squarely in the IMDb top 250 for two decades, uh, a multi-Oscar winner. And um, I don't know where its reputation lies now, but I guess we'll get to that, won't we? I mean, a lot of movies from the 90s, they're kind of like bad dates. It's like, oh, can you believe we lauded that as a classic at the time? <laughs> I guess so. Well, yeah, t- t- 10 years, heck, even, even 10 years of hindsight can be pretty rough. Uh, mm-hmm. Now we're talking 20 uh, from a decade in which, um, I don't know, it's, which which was far uglier than I think we, we could have perceived. <laughs> um, a good Dow Jones average, I think, covered up for a lot. Okay. <laughs> I mean, well, so I blame myself. Let's just put it out there. I blame myself because after uh, American History X last week and uh, very poor timing on my part due to the increased anti-Semitic attacks that this country faces every day. <laughs> uh, tug and call. Yes, from from Bernie Sanders and the left. You're right. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> and Jeremy thought... Corbyn. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> and yeah, I like to... I, we always end up doing some kind of Christmas adjacent movie at the end of the year because it's Christmas time. So I'm like, all right, we got to throw a bone to our, our Jewish, our brothers, our friends of the tribe. So I'm yeah. like, oh, let's do a, a movie that revolves around Jews. And so I we ended up uh, here, which um, I deeply, deeply regret. <laughs> to be fair, to be fair, there's not a lot of joyous <laughs> moments in Jewish history. No, no, sadly not. No. And uh, it's at a, least not it, many committed to film. So. Yes, and it's a shame because the mo- the movie title is is meant to be a kind of semi ironic, but maybe slightly wistful. Because this week we revisited the 1997 movie Life Is Beautiful.
ci sento solo da questo orecchio io. John, I want to cast your mind back to <laughs> another movie. Okay. Uh, and maybe this requires some explanation. Actually, I'm, I'm assuming a lot of cinephiles listen to this, so maybe mm-hmm. no explanation is required. Do you recall the mysterious, unreleased movie, The Day the Clown Cried? Yes, by one Jerry Lewis. Yeah, the venerable Jerry Lewis tried to make a, a, a dramatic film about the uh, kind of marry his comic sensibility with the the drama of the holocaust so he shot actually like they shot and edited and put together a film about a a a jewish man who was also a a clown and he would perform and try to cheer up uh this the terrible victims of the holocaust as they were led off to their deaths i mean Mm -hmm. pretty pretty macabre terrible concept yeah and that kind of taste has prevailed, and it's never been released to the public, um, in spite of it being a huge, multi-million-dollar-budgeted undertaking. Um, however, uh, noted Italian actor, writer-director Roberto Benigni tried something very similar with *Life Is Beautiful*, mm-hmm. and I wanted to just get this out of the way because this is a story about somebody who's trying to make make positive out of the one of the most heinous acts in, in uh, world history. And I just wanted, what is your first impression of that, of his aspiration to kind of t- make something light out of something so dark? Uh, I can only put the blame on one particular character, and that would be Charlie Chaplin. Because ah. as we know, we've, we've revisited this movie before. He did The Great Dictator, which again blends this satire of Adolf Hitler and the Nazi occupation of Europe with this kind of comedic sensibility. But the reason why that movie kind of mostly works is because Charlie Chaplin was doing this before anyone was aware of the horrors that the Nazis would be capable of. Um, Doing it now, what we know in hindsight, you know, post-1945, it seems in poor taste no matter what anyone tries to do with Mm -hmm. kind of... And you definitely get the sense watching this movie, this movie definitely feels like a silent era movie with audio, with just the most insipid score. Oh, I just, I could not (laughs) stand that music every time. And it's a movie that you could definitely watch on mute. And I highly recommend watching this movie, if you must. (laughs) Um, On the one hand, I'm kind of grateful because I can't remember the last time we watched a movie for this podcast that was this bad. And I'm kind of grateful because most of the time, you know, we're kind of like wishy-washy or we're like, oh, this works and this doesn't. This movie genuinely sucks. And I'm kind of grateful I, that we're that you know we can be unambiguous about it. Maybe you can. I'm I'm a bit more wishy-washy. The reason I wanted to get your first impression is because if you told me here's here's an Italian comedy that is sneakily um, that is deceiving you into actually being a terrible tale of the Holocaust, I would say that that is gross. Mm-hmm. That is that is in poor taste and and bad. But judging the movie as it is. Like, I can see how audiences 20 years ago were a little bit swept up in its whimsy. Um, mm. So I was unswept. I was not yeah. swept up by the whimsy. <laughs> yeah, I did yeah. not care for the whimsy. Generally, one of us is, is, is too cynical to, to be swept up by the, by the joys of, say, cinema and, you know, has to, has to narrow down to its terrible, terrible content. And regardless, we can talk about how terrible the, the content of Life is Beautiful <laughs> is in a moment. Mm-hmm. But you do have to kind of calibrate your thinking because I, 
I think while while the premise is too like macabre and tasteless to show basically this clown not this clown played by uh, Roberto Panini but this guy who's who's trying to be endlessly cheerful for his son in light of the horrors of the Holocaust in, in spite of that being uh, in poor taste I found the final result to be about probably the best version that you probably could do of that <laughs> oh that's damning with fine praise yeah, exactly <laughs> if you must do a whimsical family comedy about the Holocaust I guess this is the best you can do <laughs> yeah now granted I have not been to uh, I or I have not been to one of those Hollywood parties where they put on the day the clown cried, um, mm. which, as many people have pointed out, has probably got to be the worst party you could ever attend. <laughs> oh, but Greg, you could be such a Hollywood insider. You get That's to true. probably go to like some kind of like private theater owned by like I don't know Mel Brooks or some old crone. Yeah, who knows? Someone, yeah. <laughs> Speaking of which, not to do like a, a logical fallacies and point out the people who support versus um, diminish this work, but even Mel Brooks said like uh, this, this is tasteless. This movie. <laughs> yeah, this is tasteless. Mel Brooks is saying that. That <laughs> I think that's why he, his head or his name was in my head because yeah, like and I completely agree. I think this movie is utterly tasteless. I don't. <laughs> I mean. We can we'll get to it, but it's like the first half isn't even involved. Like you only kind of get the the uh, utter sense that there's this growing creep of anti-Semitism coming in because the first half is all this romance story, this fairy tale romance story between Guido and what would be his future wife Nora, which played by his real life wife. Yeah, which I think is I kind of understand what they're doing. They're trying to like kind of ease you into the horrors that you're going to be facing later, but for me it was too little too late cuz this takes up like 45 minutes of the movie. Is this dumb little like meet cue where it's like, "Oh, yeah, again like and we're talking like true silent movie antics where it's like someone gets eggs put in their hat and then he puts his hat on yeah. and it's, he's got egg on his face. It's so dumb. <laughs> well, not not dumb. There were some bits of that that I that I liked. I'll, I'll get to them in a second, mm. but you're right. It's This is literally a Holocaust drama hiding in Italian sex comedy clothes. <laughs> <laughs> because we have Roberto Benigni, and as you said, like this, this first half really doesn't work on a logical perspective because he's got him and his friend, mm-hmm. friend, cousin, relative, I don't, I have no idea. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they're just the rolling setup into town. is so paper thin. Yeah, th- they're just rolling into an unknown town. Uh, apparently, his uncle, uh, Roberto Benigni's character Guido, his uncle owns a restaurant slash hotel that they can work at. And at this point, there, as you said, there's a meet cute with a, a very rich woman who we later find out is a very rich woman who's um, arranged to be married to a, a bureaucrat in the city um, mm-hmm. who won't allow Guido to uh, open his bookstore. Yeah. that's I guess that's the other thing driving the plot. I mean, again, paper thin. He just wants to open a bookstore. Mm-hmm. Um, we, I, we never see him read. We never see him have any literary passions. But that's <laughs> that's the kind of thin, like, romantic comedy setup. And I guess the implication is the meet-cute is that she falls into his arms uh, from a from a barn from the top of a barn. Yeah, she was apparently trying to get the wasps out of the roof or something like that, and this yeah. is happening. Like everything is also so contrived, like purposefully so. Yeah. Uh, I mean, the other well, that's thing could... that's the bit I like. That's there. There's a moment when he's trying to court her, and they establish earlier, like you know, oh, you just have to scream Maria's name, and she'll toss down the key, and you know, do mm-hmm. this, and that 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 I liked. It's like we set up all that whimsy, and then it's used later to basically uh, establish the romance in this fable which the narrator says this is supposed to be a fable yeah little does it little little do you know as the audience member that um they're actually sneakily going to um loose the horrors of the holocaust on you 
Yeah, which feels like a trick. It's like, yeah, <laughs> I know that's like narratively. It, I understand why they're trying to set you up and 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 put on this kind of like smiling, happy face, this farcical element to the movie to kind of like ease you in. But it feels like a betrayal, not so much like a oh, you got me, screenwriter. At least to I, me, I, anyway. I, Obviously, the movie yeah. didn't work for me, but I mean, maybe you think differently. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I I think we needed more establishment that a these characters have a Jewish identity. Mm-hmm. Which they because, never do. Besides yeah. the fact that they get harassed by anti-Semitics, but other than that, like yeah, there's no. Also, you never see them sit down to like Shabbat dinner. You never see them yeah. like wearing yarmulke. Like they have no cultural Jewish heritage. So, and even we don't even get his like last name. So there's no sense that he's Jewish at all until they tell us. And there are only three really scenes that establish that yes, this is taking place in World War Two under Axis powers who are uh, and basically doing state-enforced anti-Semitism. The first is that they beat their uncle, and he's just been beat up mm-hmm. in the lobby of his hotel or tchotchke shop. Again, the, the logic or establishment doesn't matter, but mm-hmm. <laughs> that's all we know is that he's been uh, beat up in some way. There's no implication that it's because of his Jewish identity. Yeah, that only comes later. Yeah, later we see that his horse uh, is painted, again, horrible, painted like a painted <laughs> horse, um, but it does have an anti-Semitic slur spray-painted on it. Mm-hmm. And uh, I don't again, think spray like, painted existed in the 1940s, but whatever. Your point is, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's the other thing. I mean, it it's establishing that this is the the oppression that they're under, but it all seems very mild. And later, it's used like he he takes her off on the very same horse that's now painted green. Exactly. And it's supposed to be the a cheerful moment. So th- that doesn't work. And it's not until that like years later that um he's finally gotten this princess as he calls her. He's finally courted her, and they get married. And now it's years later, they have a son, uh, Weedo's achieved his dream, he's opened this bookstore, but uh, as they close up, or at least the state says you have to register for something, or, you know, takes him away and he does this silly walk, but he also pulls down the garage door over his store, and there's another anti-Semitic slur written over it. Mm-hmm. And that's the only that's the only time when it's like it seems to be shown with any gravity at this point, and over an hour into our Holocaust movie. <laughs> <laughs> All'ultimo classificato verrà attaccato con un cartello con su scritto Asino qui sulla schiena. Ihr habt die Ehre für unser großes deutsches Vaterland arbeiten zu dürfen und am Bau des großdeutschen Reiches teilzunehmen. Noi facciamo la parte di quelli cattivi cattivi che urlano. Chi ha paura perde punti. Drei Grundregeln solltet ihr nie vergessen. Erstens, versuche nicht zu fliehen. Zweitens, folge jedem Befehl ohne Fragen. Drittens, jeder Versuch eines Aufstandes wird mit dem Tod durch Erhängen bestraft. Ist das klar? In tre casi si perdono tutti i punti. Li perdono. Uno, quelli che si mettono a piangere. Due, quelli che vogliono vedere la mamma. Tre, quelli che hanno fame e vogliono la merendina. Scordatevela! And so what ends up happening is uh, they all get taken off to the camp. Actually, just him and his son are originally taken off to the camp, and it's up to Nora, which is kind of a nice touch I liked. Nora kind of sacrifices herself 
to Mm -hmm. the camp as well because she's like if they're going to die i'm going to die with my family even though they are separated um i thought it was kind of like a bold character choice and it felt very human in a movie that does not feel human whatsoever (laughs) um so i appreciated that touch yeah well, I think there are some really good reasons for that. One, that we are speaking about the writer-director's wife. Mm-hmm. So I'm sure he wanted to give her a character, like a, a really meaty role to play. And so she's allowed to have this agency. Mm-hmm. Um, the other important kind of, I guess, plot function that it serves is that um, while Roberto Benigni's character has to be endlessly cheerful and, and basically pretend that circumstances aren't as bad for the sake of his son, at least when we cut back to her and... You know, we have this romantic interest in the story. We also get to see the gravity of the Holocaust. That's true. It's like she she gets to play the in in the in the um, portrait of theater. Like she has to play the frowny face, whereas <laughs> Roberto Benigni plays the smiling one. Hmm. Yes, but yeah, the 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 uh, the majority of the runtime is is kept up with this farce, this game that uh, Guido is playing with his son, where he's pretending like the camp is just one big game, and uh, you have to earn points. So every little thing that he wants his son to do, like when the guards are coming by, he needs them to hide. So he says hide to earn like ten points. Once you earn a thousand points, you win a real tank. Uh, he's been mm-hmm. uh, he's been playing around with this toy tank the whole game. And uh, now he thinks that if like this whole camp is a game, and he'll win a real tank at the end of it. Yeah. So, I, obviously, you're, you've already made your feelings known about yes. this. <laughs> All right, Greg, defend this movie. I do. I'm, <laughs> so tell I'm us not... why this Holocaust movie was so much fun. Everybody for you. has a right to an attorney, and <laughs> okay. as a public defender of, of terribly tasteless <laughs> plot lines, I am going to stand up for how it delivers this content. Okay. I think in the initial scenes it works. Mm. Like it, I. One of the particularly memorable scenes is, um, you know, he's he's obviously set up this game like a uh, young son. Uh, what's his son's name? Joseph. Like you mm-hmm. have to you have to um, earn points, and and even though everyone's surrounding him and giving him these kind of like baffled looks, um, you know, it that seems you can kind of understand like at least from initially like how this premise works. And this mem- and this particular scene, it memorably ends with um, a German soldier stand- uh, storming in, and uh, they ask, "Does anybody speak German so that they can interpret uh, for these Italian uh, oppressed mm. Italian Jews here?" Like and, I said, uh, contrived, extremely I, contrived. <laughs> no, John, it's not contrived when you're presented with a problem, and so Guido solves it by uh, claiming that he that he speaks German. Obviously he doesn't speak a word. And so when he's given a chance to interpret, he gives them, he, he basically explains to his son the premise of the game as if he's telling everybody else. And again, they're baffled, but uh, early somewhat baffled, but th- I don't know. I thought it was as amusing as a scene about a character <laughs> lying about the Holocaust could be. Oh, okay. Great. Yeah. <laughs> Great. But the problem is that that's the very first scene. And from there, it doesn't really progress. It is all just, Guido being endlessly cheerful in light of his son. Yes, yeah, so and ex- what I like again, going back to its 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 uh, silent movie roots, it's extremely episodic, so yeah. it doesn't really feel like it's building towards anything. No, and what I desperately wanted to see, at least belying an actor who won Best Actor in <laughs> 1998, <laughs> was like any conflict on his face, mm-hmm. and that's the thing. I guess Roberto Benigni is such a professional, like or. <laughs> I just couldn't show any vulnerability or any weakness in terms of the story. Like he is, he, he is so committed, and he literally delivers on like being, on being endlessly 
cheerful and upbeat for his son that we don't see any of the other conflict that could arise from that. Like, we don't see him ever, like, being struggled with hunger. We don't ever see, like, a moment of, like, when the facade cracks in him. Instead, it's always, like, the circumstance around him. So it's, like, it's like all the dramatic stakes get taken out of it. You're absolutely right. And um, no, like, it's not that I don't want to give the kid actor any credit, but the mm. whole point is that he's supposed to be a kid. So uh, he also, we don't get like a powerhouse performance out of this kid either. He's just kind of like dumbfounded the same at the same time. So we're not really invested in anything besides just their survival in general. Yeah. So I do want to point out one, one moment in which the plot does progress. Okay. And that's... um. He has he has a doctor friend who's also a mainstay at this hotel, so he's always serving this doctor, and they trade riddles and tongue twisters, or not yeah. tongue twisters, but riddles. And later, it's revealed that he is actually a, a Nazi doctor. Mm-hmm. Yes, and he <laughs> and, recognizes uh, him when they're lined up and they're doing their kind of daily rounds. Yeah, and the implication is like uh, when they when he kind of arranges these secret meetings and and conversations, the implication is like, oh, don't worry, old friend, I'm going to get you out of this. Yeah, or that you know he's like on his side. He like actually mm-hmm. has genuine sympathy for Guido and his situation. Yeah, and so when he has this secret conversation, it's at a party, and he pulls him over. You know, they're in the corner, and there's anguish on the doctor's face, and he says like, oh, my old friend Guido, I'm sorry, I can't figure out this riddle. <laughs> I mean, and I, I, that's the only that's the only moment where I felt like, OK, like finally we're getting to the real implication of the plot or it's like you, you raise my hopes and then you dash them like yeah. you had another mode other than the 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 slight amusement of Weedo try, trying to trying to remain cheerful in the face of uh, this horror. No, yeah, it's 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 well done because it's telling the story visually. Which mm-hmm. this you know this movie is sadly lacking. It's just not very well directed. Everything's done in a wide, <laughs> like it's yes. kind of it's very boring. <laughs> um, but like with these kind with this you know doctor twist, it's like nice because you're right. It's like visual shorthand is used very well. Oh, we think the doctor's trying to tell him something. We think the doctor's like sympathetic and on his side and he's going to help him out. And that's what makes it like so much more tragic and painful when it's just like no, no, I'm just I'm concerned with my own problems. I don't really care about you at all. <laughs> um, yeah. So you're right, that does, if there is anything about this movie that works, I guess it would be that scene in particular. But again, it's just another uh, episode in this kind of like belabored series of, you know, tragic events that happen in this, in this uh, concentration camp. Like, you're right, like there, there's a slight sense of escalation because again, there's kind of a setup and payoff. But for me, it's just like another cog in the wheel i guess or just another of uh, the, the story point that they hit and then it's just moving on all right now we're yeah. playing hide and seek now that's the game <laughs> yeah <laughs> speaking of story points i think we should get to the most uh, dramatic one mm-hmm. again the the only implication that we've ever seen of, of death is kind of uh, we're being told that the showers are actually gas chambers again mm-hmm. horrific and it's not until one moment when He's walking through the camp. His son is asleep on his shoulders, mm-hmm. and he actually comes across all these bodies piled up. Yeah, and it's through seen through the fog, and he turns around like, "Oh, oh, forget about that." Um, <laughs> it's it's kind of it's kind of indicative of the movie overall. It can't really confront um, this terrible death, and that happen, That's what really happens at the end, as you said. Um, he gets his son Joseph to in this fake game of hide and seek. The implication is also that it's the end of the war. Like, the German soldiers are scrambling, and, yeah. and they can't really corral the camp anymore. Mm-hmm. And Guido tries to escape in this, but he gets caught. A, by, like, uh, dressing up as a woman. 
And I'm not sure if the implication in there was that it was supposed to be funny, but yeah, it's just another like kind of like baffling moment. It felt <laughs> it felt like again like he's going for like a kind of. I kept thinking of like the silent movie era when I was watching this, and that definitely yeah. just the ridiculous like you know I don't know what to call it like hood thing and the dress like yeah it felt very farcical, especially when it's supposed to be the darkest chapter of the movie too. Yes, <laughs> and it does like the whole dumb spotlight gag where you know it's like the spotlight's crawling along the wall and he has to like mm-hmm. crawl up just in time and he barely misses it. Like it's so so tone deaf. It's so bad (laughs) (laughs) well and yeah and it can't really confront these horrors we only had that scene of again of a terrible atrocity bodies being piled up and and burned and it's the same here like um in this one final moment he gets led away by a german soldier he does this silly walk um because you know for the amusement of his son son. yeah but again we can't really confront the drama of it because the soldier leads him around a corner you hear a gunfire and then just the soldier comes back around the corner and that's it that's 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 the tragic loss of our friend Guido. It can't actually like kind of show the the terrible violence or or, or death. <laughs> well, I mean, to to the film's credit, because again, this is what just my expectations at this point. The camera does linger on that corner for a while, and at this point, I was like fully expecting. Well, maybe it could pop out. Like it lingers just yeah. perfect the perfect amount of time for you to be like, oh, it would be so stupid if he actually popped out from the other side. But no, he does not. Because sadly, he does succumb to just another a victim of the Holocaust, sadly. Yeah. All right. Carlos! So it, I think it would be very poignant if the film ended there. That would, However, per- that would have been perfect, wouldn't it? <laughs> However, <laughs> but no, this is a movie of bad decisions, bad choices. <laughs> yes, uh, Holocaust, bad decision. Shouldn't have done it. <laughs> this movie, possibly a bad decision. I probably shouldn't have done it, but we'll, we'll soldier on. Yes, it's the end of the camp. Daylight, daylight is broke. All the uh, Nazi soldiers have fled. Mm-hmm. And so uh, Yosef uh, finally emerges in this empty camp. And then what does he see? Oh, a glorious tank. I, I assume it's mine because my father has kept up this ruse. Piloted that, uh, by would... brave Americans. <laughs> yes, absolutely. That could have also been uh, what drew a lot of accolades in the United States, is that uh, <laughs> America rides as a hero. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's not just enough that they just show up at the end glorious and triumphant. They see this kid and they're like, well, do you want to ride, Sonny Jim? Like, <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> It's so like it is like he is. It's straight. Yeah, it is Audie Murphy, pretty much. (laughs) It's like who directed this? Frank Capra? What's going on? Yeah. So. Oh no, Frank Capra would have a more honest, cynical point of view. Okay. (laughs) Fair point. It's like, but remember, this is part of the war machine. (laughs) Yeah. 
I just don't. And understand. then later, he's reunited with his mother, who also survived. I just uh, don't understand why this was so accepted. Like in the '90s, why was this thought of as like the pinnacle of fire? Or was this kind of like I don't know the Green Book of its day, where it's like people flock to this movie. It's like you want to go see a feel-good movie, sure. And all the critics were like, "No, you fools! What are you doing?" Yeah, <laughs> I think. Yeah, we didn't have the media landscape that we have today, so maybe it, it wasn't seen as divisive, as mm. as divisive. The one also kind of looming shadow, uh, the only other looming shadow oh, hanging over this, other than the Holocaust, <laughs> is the, 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 the wide, girthy uh, shadow of one Harvey Weinstein, mm. who imparted not just terrible, atrocious power over young actresses, but also over the academy mm. and the fact that he could like through his like kind of campaigning tricks like really control the narrative around a movie so it, it through this distribution at miramax like he was he could also kind of control like hey this is designed this is a period piece it kind of looks at the horror of the holocaust but also in somewhat of a family-friendly way i think it's the other thing like yeah it, schindler's I, list is is raw and rough and mm-hmm. shows the horror for the holocaust what it is this is a much more as we said whimsical and saccharine view of it oh yeah that i think is like okay to bring your grandma and your kids to it opens and closes with narration, like in like this is yeah. my story. Like it's, yeah. <laughs> it's so kind of cloyingly sweet, which is why the subject yeah. matter just makes it all the worse. Which is why this movie just plain sucks. I hated it. I hated it. <laughs> <laughs> I I I was a little bit more forgiving. I think this is the best version that you could possibly do of the day the clown cried. <laughs> all right, fine. Yeah, I guess we're just gonna have to now revisit Pinocchio after we're done with I this. <laughs> For those non-film snobs out there, Pinocchio was Roberto Benigni's big follow-up in which he he wants to play. He plays the titular Pinocchio as a uh, late 40s, <laughs> as a man in his late 40s. Yes, and I believe it was on uh, one of collected in one of Roger Ebert's like bad movie reviews books. That's how I remember mm-hmm. it specifically. Yeah, probably not great. I don't know. We haven't seen it, so. <laughs> well, again, we're going to revisit it for this podcast, right, Greg? We're going to do it next uh, week. Come on. Sure, sure. Um, <laughs> Actually, that'd be funny if we could find it anywhere to rent. I mean, obviously, Life is Beautiful is an Oscar winner and widely available in a lot of places, but mm-hmm. <laughs> Pinocchio, not so much. <laughs> Somehow, that was more objectionable than a saccharine, uh, feel-good look at the Holocaust. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's weird. He actually did another version of Pinocchio, where he plays Geppetto Wait, this time. Yeah. Okay. Oh, so yeah. so he he course corrected is what you're saying. <laughs> I yeah, and with you know two, uh, 2019 technology, maybe now he can okay. truly you know create his vision. All right, he's, well, he's that probably said, using all that mocap Marvel mocap magic. And also, it, it must be said, Roberto Benigni is not just a clown; he was also somewhat politically active. So I think people were kind of expecting him to go and like into hard territory because I know he was a, he supported the Communist Party in the 80s. Um, oh, really? Yeah, really objected to uh, Prime Minister slash Bunga Bunga Party enthusiast uh, Silvio Berlusconi. <laughs> oh, well, I yeah. mean, not all. Well, some of us are just misguided, because for me, he's a personal hero. <laughs> and not just because I was invited to uh, many of Bunga Bunga parties, let me tell you. <laughs>
But anyway, um, let's close the book on Life is Beautiful, shall we? Yes. And let's never let's, speak of it again. Let's close the book on this fable and let's put it back on the bookshop and never check it out again. Yeah. <sighs> what a mess. But again, a kind of a, a fruitful mess because it's been a while since I've seen a movie this bad. Right, it, makes me, it, ma- it makes me feel refreshed. All right. Like, ah, yes. Good taste does prevail in my own brain. Yeah. I remember when we had uh, Sam from TV Lab on the show, and she asked us, what was the worst movie you guys watched for this for this mm-hmm. podcast? Would you say this is now the worst movie you've ever watched for this podcast? No, I still, wouldn't, I still wouldn't go that far. It's close, okay. but I wouldn't go that far. All right. What, what would you say was worse? Oh, still American Beauty. American Beauty okay. is just atrocious. All right. On every level. <laughs> the Oscar winner the following year, I believe. But yes. So. <laughs> I, I mean, there was a time when I thought the 90s was like a good decade for movies. No, I'm not so sure anymore. <laughs> no, John. It's yeah. Thank goodness we can finally wrap up the discourse on like, oh, 1999, greatest year ever <laughs> for movies. Remember Office Space? <laughs> yeah. It was literally a book called, like, Best Period Movie Period Year Period. How embarrassing. I bet that's also probably when that uh, 1001 Movies book came out. That's got to be, right? Oh, really? Oh, probably. Yeah, end of the millennium or whatever. Yeah, probably, or something like that. Mm-hmm. I guess I could look that up. Uh, that's that's work. Can't do that. Yeah. Sadly, these these inner machines can't work fast enough. Ugh, when will I have a personal computer that can work faster? I know. But, John, let's, again, close the book on Life is Beautiful, put it back on the shelf, mm-hmm. uh, pull out of the parking spot of debate, <laughs> and turn uh, on the corner of Recommendation Road. Mm. And if I could mix any more f- metaphors, uh, let's highlight uh, something that we do enjoy, and it's our signature segment, Spotlight. 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 It's time, Robbie! It's time! Well, Greg, you already teased us earlier with your yeah. recommendation. You want to recommend some kind of song or perhaps musical artiste? <laughs> well, I was, I was going to do that for the very end of the episode. Um, oh, okay. I do have an apt recommendation. Well, let's not call it a strong recommendation, but I did catch mm. up on another uh, Oscar winner for Best Actor from a few years ago. Okay. Uh, now available on Netflix. This weekend I watched Dallas Buyers Club for the first oh. time. Oh, okay. Yeah, have you seen it? No, I still have not seen it. Okay. Because Jared Leto knows what he did. <laughs> it's called 30 Seconds to Mars. <laughs> oh. Oh. Hi, oh. <laughs> Boom. Roasted. <laughs> anyway, this... I mean, we've got to be careful, Greg. This Jared Leto guy's untouchable. <laughs> yeah, sure. Ask, ask uh, the Joker producers about that. Uh this movie came highly recommended for family members, and I can see why. This is another kind of feel-good Oscar movie. I can kind of see it, even though it's dealing with another terrible uh, moment in history, the AIDS epidemic in the 80s. Mm-hmm. Matthew McConaughey plays a real-life person, Ron Woodruff, um, who basically, in spite of having no like medical knowledge or degrees, uh, contracted AIDS and tried to find a cure for himself and then was able to share it with others. Mm-hmm. Again, like a pretty good story, I think. I, I think... Ron Woodruff is, in fact, like a, a person worth celebrating. And there are bits of the story that I like. Like, I did like his performance. Uh, Jared Leto is, I think, okay. It kind of depends on the circumstance. Like, at least initially, like, when he's when he's coming out, like, he is, like, flamboyant, and it felt like putting on airs. Maybe it's because I know, like, we now have greater impressions of 
uh, uh, transgender people or drag queens or something that that we kind of see them as real people and maybe not the the pastiche that Jared Leto's doing in some scenes. But I mean, maybe that was uh, intentional. Like maybe they're yeah. trying to go for this thing. It's like this is how drag queens come across when they're first introduced. So, and then under maybe that you get the yeah maybe yeah, that was the point. But yeah, and and I want to give all credit to Jean-Marc uh, Vallet, the director of this movie, because I think he elevates what is a just a an average script and i'll get to the script later um, <laughs> oh no <laughs> yeah because he does this very convincing documentary style and there's some also subjective filmmaking touches like when uh ron woodruff like it starts in medias rest he's already contracted this disease and it's and it's kind of affecting his his psyche in addition to his body and so there's a lot of ringing coming over the soundtrack and and uh the the mise-en-scene becomes out of focus and that's all very well done however as I said, this is supposed to be a crowd-pleasing Oscar Beatty movie, mm-hmm. and that comes across in how it's written. Ron Woodruff, as written, is another one of those great characters who has a thesaurus for every <laughs> uh, minority and oppressed uh, people's group like okay. out there. Uh, that's how his character is established. If you ask, like you know, true to life, like people would say, like, oh, Ron Ron Woodruff was a very uh, generous person. Like he wasn't as hateful as portrayed in the movie. But because it's a movie, like we have to portray him that way, and yeah. it kind of if you're a savvy moviegoer, like you will see it like coming a mile away. Mm. <laughs> so so there's that, and there's also like I I don't want to judge a movie based on its content alone, as I just explained with Life Is Beautiful. I want to see like how it explains the content, and what I really uh, despised about the way the story unfolds is that once again it's the story of like capitalism triumphing oh. <laughs> Ron Woodruff <laughs> initially like can't get the the uh, the medicine he needs uh, because of the this the snooty doctors and the pharma companies and the FDA oh, the bureaucracy like, really, exactly yeah these kind of big bureaucratic faceless villains those are the real villains of the story and so it takes his entrepreneurship to really he's mm. the one that establishes this buyers club and and people buy in to get the medicine they need and and later he becomes he has to learn the error of his ways and becomes more altruistic but again it's it's once again framed as like the american dream working like anybody through their thrift and diligence can um set set up their own business and and make it work that way not not terrible uh big bad business or government institutions like the fda yeah the last half of the movie just i don't know just puts a big giant frowny face on top of the (laughs) fda I mean, that we is... can't name any of the real terrible people like uh, Ronald Reagan and his administration. No. Oh, no, we can't say that. No. <laughs> and I mean, that's kind of one of the things that the movie kind of, uh, when I was reading criticism about this movie when it came out, that's also one of the things that it glosses over. It obviously makes the FDA look like the bad guy. But I mean, it was a strange time when this medication was extremely experimental and a lot of people did die from drugs that turned out to not work. But again, they wouldn't yeah. have known because, you know, they were. So you can, like, say on the one hand the fda was irresponsible with the way they were doling out drugs or you could say that they were being overly cautious and you could also like you said mention the reagan administration which didn't give them proper funding to actually do any of this stuff so but obviously that's that's obviously too uh it's too ambiguous for this movie no 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 we don't have time exactly it's gotta make a feel good movie Exactly. We have to have clear, like, uh, heroes and villains. So in sharp contrast to uh, Life is Beautiful, or maybe not sharp contrast, I think it's kind of the same, maybe the same side of the coin. Like, I think the content itself is objectionable. In the case of Life is Beautiful, you shouldn't make a saccharine, happy movie about the Holocaust. Same here. You shouldn't 
kind of boil down characters to be types and give them the standard arcs that we see in, in dozens of other movies when real life is much more interesting. Mm-hmm. I kind of wish it focused more on Jared Leto's character, Rayon, mm-hmm. because she's struggling with addiction and and um, gets caught in the, in the most dramatic scene when he has to, when she, excuse me, like has to go back to her father and present herself as a man, or at least as her father remembers him and the, and the, the tension between them. That's that, that scene works. Uh, mm-hmm. for the rest of the time, like, you know, Jared Leto has to play, uh, his character is flouncy and, and flamboyant, but that scene like definitely like makes an impact and hits yeah. home like a sledgehammer. So, mm-hmm. so there, like life is beautiful. There's, there's stuff I like in spite of the kind of like <laughs> the, uh, content objections I have to it. Got it. So, but yeah, it's on Netflix. Go check it out. Okay, it's a, it's a reasonable recommendation. I'll allow it. I'll yeah. allow it. <laughs> I wish I I wish I could re- recommend something more full throatedly. Perhaps you do, John. Oh, do I ever? Although I am a little uh, I don't want to say ashamed, but I am going to recommend. <laughs> John, something there's no that... shame here. This is a safe space. Come on. You're right. This is Open a safe up. space. And I know you, Greg. You are a judgmental free person. And you won't absolutely if, for if, my choices. If, if anybody, if anybody had two words to describe me, it's judgment free. <laughs> well, now so John, thing- why don't I go ahead, take a sip of this high, piping hot tea, and go ahead and recommend what you have to recommend? Okay, I want to recommend Steven Universe. <sighs> go on. <laughs> so, how old are you again? What? Okay, here, here's the thing. It's appropriate for all ages. And I will explain why, okay? And I will explain, first and foremost, how I ended up watching Steven Universe. I am a big Hulu subscriber. Um, I watch a lot of Hulu. And I noticed, if you're watching a kids program, there's actually no ads. So you can watch kids stuff ad-free, which is very convenient. Also very convenient, every episode is 11 minutes long. And what a blessing that is. (laughs) I can binge an entire season in an afternoon. It is delightful. And... Uh, when I first started watching, it was just kind of like a nice little uh, little background noise show. Uh, the early season uh, kind of starts off very obtuse. The show centers mm-hmm. around the uh, titular character of Steven Universe as he lives with his uh, three aunts, I guess you could describe them, uh, Garnet, and Amethyst, and Pearl. All the characters are named, okay. all the alien characters are named after uh, gemstones. Um, yeah. So wait, and, so they live off in a in somewhere in the galaxy... Right? No. Or no. are they on Earth? No, they're on Earth. Okay. I guess here's how I'm going to sell the show to you. Imagine right. uh, Bob's Burgers if Gene Belcher was the main character and it was sci fi. Okay. I can, because, I can see that. Because, uh, yeah, the. the uh, but are the, all the Belchers yelling and improv the way they No, do? no. <laughs> Dang it. Okay, John, see? You lost me. <laughs> okay. <laughs> no. So it takes place in the uh, city of Beach City, again, like a. Uh, off, somewhere off the coast of New Jersey, very Lavalette-esque, yeah. except that there's aliens, apparently. <laughs> and the whole townsfolk take this in stride. So Stephen cool. lives in this temple with these three kind of, like, aunts. The whole backstory and the whole kind of power set around everyone is left very obtuse at the, in the first season. The first season kind of just kind of revolves around Stephen as he just kind of gets into trouble with whatever the alien hoopajoop is for the week. So let's say he gets, like, some kind of alien artifact that uh, affects time. Well, he gets into a crazy adventure where he ends up cloning himself or something like that, which actually ends up being really cute because what, what is his first instinct? They start a band, Stephen and the Stevens. Um, anyway, <laughs> sure. 
It's not until the second season of the show that we actually start getting into the backstory and kind of explanation on what the gems are specifically, where they come from, and how they ended up on Earth, and what exactly they're fighting. The first season, like, the plots kind of revolve around, like, oh, this alien thing is malfunctioning, we have to stop it, or just kind of bizarre random events that, you know, the crystal gems are just trying to keep in order. And it's not until the second season that they kind of reveal, well, they were actually part of this, like, intergalactic rebellion, and so we get some kind of, like, backstory on the hierarchy of the gem society that they came from, why they ended up rebelling, and we learn a bit more about uh, Steven and his mom. His mom was one of these aliens who fell in love with his uh, dad, Gregory. <laughs> And Gregory okay. is kind of a, a cool. deadbeat. Cool, I like him already. <laughs> He's kind of a deadbeat. Oh, he owns, a, he owns a car wash and lives out of his van. Um, that's why he lives with right. his. Uh... All right, he won me back. Cool. <laughs> <laughs> so he's a young. He's a small business owner. That's nice. Yes. So the the second season onward becomes much more uh, canonical. It becomes like uh, kind of. It has more of a storyline. You kind of it has a kind of continuing story that you follow from episode to episode, which again is very gracious because each episode is only eleven minutes, okay. and we kind of get more involved into this intergalactic warfare backstory that we weren't really involved in. And here's where it gets interesting. In case you weren't already <laughs> sold enough, wait a minute, <laughs> which I know you were. So up until this point, it's mm. been kind of your let's say kind of Cal style uh, Saturday morning cartoon. You know, you've yeah. got the crystal gems. Everyone has like their own kind of like X-Men style power. Everyone has their own kind of weapon. It's all kind of very fun. And once it gets into like the intergalactic hoopajoop stuff where, you know, they have mm-hmm. to get involved in the kind of politics and the rebellion and stuff like that. This is where it kind of turns in on its head because Steven, the main character, is green. He's immature. He doesn't really understand his alien powers. And also he's half human. So there's a lot just in general, he doesn't really relate to with these aliens. So when it comes time for fights, it comes down to actually his use of EQ, not IQ or actual formidable powers to stop things. And so what, and like, again, like I was very serious about the, the Gene Belcher comparison, because the other thing too is like, Steven's not particularly manly. He's very kind of like gender fluid. Like there's a few episodes where he dresses up as a woman and it's like not a big deal. Um, he's very sensitive. He's very caring. He's very nurturing. Um, like I said, every single crystal gem gets like a special weapon. His is a shield because okay. he's a defender. He's not an attacker. He's a defender. Um, and all his, he's a woman defender and that's what matters. <laughs> <laughs> So it's like with the show kind of zags where you expect it to zig given all it's kind of like sci-fi ephemera and very Saturday morning cartoon kind of styling. And it's a show that kind of rewards kids or kind of tries to teach kids the value of being sensitive and kind of hearing each other out because whereas everyone else when there's like an alien ship about to arrive and there's going to be a big conflict everyone's kind of like getting ready for battle poses and steven just standing there gormlessly is like why is everyone so angry like why can't we just talk this out (laughs) so it's it's a really fun show it's really cute and it's really sweet and it's heartfelt and like bob's burgers it's musical a song can pop out at any time. It, you know, there's no kind of set rules on when a musical number will pop out. So um, that is actually one of the things I was reading the trivia, and it turns out that the casting decisions were more based on their singing skills rather than their voice acting expertise, which I think kind of shows. But that would okay. be probably my only qualm, because obviously I'm a snob, so I would notice these things. Okay. 
Well, now, John, you know who you're selling to, because obviously I, I love Bob's Burgers, but... <laughs> <laughs> John, there's one there's one word you have not mentioned yet that's hanging over this entire enterprise. Yes. That word is anime. Mm. This is very much an American anime, isn't it? Uh, kind of, sort of, not really. Um, I, yeah, I think it is. I think, it is. <laughs> <laughs> I think the humor works a lot better than... Uh, most uh, humor works in anime, if we can call it such a thing. <laughs> Thumbing my nose at it, good sir. Thank you very much. You're right. I would say that it, it's, it's kind of wearing its anime uh, uh, inspiration on its sleeve a bit. It's very Sailor Moon-esque, I guess you could say. <laughs> okay. Why, why, right. why do you have a problem with that, Greg? I, well, for one thing, it's American anime. It's it's cultural appropriation, is it not? <laughs> oh, okay. Fair enough. Not, fair enough. Not that I... Not something I generally have a problem with but anyway but also like i th- i think we, we should speak to people who have issues with that namely me um, again mm-hmm. if you're trying to sell it to me john yeah i have to overcome that i mm-hmm. you get me in with uh, the bob's burgers comparison but i have to i have to leap over this obstacle of anime so mm-hmm. I, I just want to you know announce that to the listenership i can safely say that you're right while it does kind of sound a bit anime-esque going into it i think you're going to find a very different perspective for instance uh unlike anime stuff actually happens uh you're not going to get like 12 episodes of two characters kind of staring at each other talking in hushed tones about their philosophy so uh you've got that going for you and uh i think it has kind of less of a bombastic style it has a what i think was commonly referred to in the uh, industry as cal arts style i think is what it's called i don't know i'm not i'm not terribly uh, familiar with the term but i think that's okay the, the backgrounds are absolutely gorgeous like just the animation is just mwah, mm, beautiful um and also like i said there is a kind of contiguous storyline that you can follow and kind of get very invested in but it's also like there's a lot of time for filler episodes they have plenty of time for like episodes that kind of like just kind of stand out on their own or just kind of like fun little adventures there's one in particular i'm thinking of where um there's like a Zoltar machine on the beachside arcade. And for a summer mm-hmm. job, you know, it breaks down. So Steven pretends to be the Zoltar machine for a summer. Okay. <laughs> and he kind of gets into he gets into trouble because he gives people like bad predictions or something like that. It's cute. It's very cute. It's a cute okay. show. Come on, have some fun. All right. Fair enough. Okay. Yeah. I, I will gladly accept this cute show when you will not accept the cuteness and sentimentality of Life is Beautiful. But fair enough. <laughs> <laughs> See, Look, I Greg, the it. crystal gems—they're—they're what... corporeal forms. They're not well, quite—you know—they don't have the same lifestyles as us. So when they die in like their alien holocaust, it's not so—you know—and also they're fictional. So, okay. yeah. <laughs> I thought this was a kids' show. Anyway, <laughs> I mean, it—we it, it, we could get into it later. Oh, oh, I just have so much okay. to discuss. <laughs> All right. Well, if you would like to discuss that with us. Mm-hmm. We do have an email, aspiringsnobs at gmail.com. Go ahead, write us with uh, your thoughts on Steven Universe, Dallas Buyers Club, uh, 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 what else? Um, oh, Life is Beautiful. Life is Beautiful, maybe. I guess. <laughs> the actual talking point of this episode. You could tell us what you think. If you think it's the greatest um, movie of all time. That's the private and... forum. That's the yes. intimate forum. Mm-hmm. If you want to get public with us, if you really yes. want to decry us for, I don't know, um, not uh, appreciating. Life is beautiful. I don't think it has any defenders out there. Um, but <laughs> Greg, it's on the IMDb any... top 250. Come on. <laughs> you're right. You're right. If you do have any virulent defenses of any of the stuff we talked about today, go ahead, write us at Twitter, 
at Aspiring Snobs or on Facebook. We have a wall there, right? It's still mm-hmm. the wall, right? Or... <laughs> I don't know. I don't care. Okay. <laughs> yeah. And Instagram. We're on Instagram, too. Yes, you can follow us on Instagram, where I'll be posting I'll be posting all about my journey across Driver Mageddon. I, what's Driver Mageddon? That's watching the three Adam Driver movies in a row. You've already oh, forgotten. Oh, right, right, right. Uh, yes, I've already forgotten. <laughs> well, no, what gosh. was that? Where am I? <laughs> Why do I smell toast? Um... <laughs> You disappoint me, Greg. You disappoint me. But it's fine. It's fine. I I was expecting you to live tweet with me in, on this journey together, but sadly, no. On Driver Mageddon? I don't, I don't think so. <laughs> oh, my gosh. I, I, I guess I'll journey here. alone. I'll soldier alone, just like normal. I know. I'm you're, the only one braver, who's brave enough. You're a braver man than me, a married man who mm-hmm. willingly wants to see Marriage Story. but <laughs> <laughs> I'm a little nervous, I'll be honest. But yeah. also, remember, these are rich folk who are... <laughs> moving between, you know, New York and L.A. No, all John, right? it's a sensible story between a, a hotshot actress and a MacArthur Genius Grant winner. <laughs> it's so relatable. You know, down to earth. Exactly. <laughs> down to earth and true. I mean, as a future MacArthur Genius Grant winner myself, you know, maybe I will be able yeah. to relate. Yeah. Okay. One Sorry. Day. We're judging One again from afar. Yes. We're not going to do that anymore. Instead, no. we're going to ask you very kindly... Go ahead, mm-hmm. give us five stars on your podcast service of choice: Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher. We're all there. We're all there. Give us a mm-hmm. give us five stars, and that'll help other people find us, and we'll be able to to get this thing off the ground, baby. Launch yeah. it into the stratosphere of virality. Viral mm-hmm. is that is that the right word? Virality. Virality. Yeah, I just yeah. said it wrong, nice. but that's fine. <laughs> okay, cool. All right, perfect. And I guess there's only one thing left to do in this episode, and that is to tease them with what we're watching next week. Of course. And this is what we'll really be concluding 2019 with. Uh, It's another holiday epic, one that I know everybody on the internet will appreciate. Last year, we enjoyed (laughs) Joe Dante's Gremlins so much that we have to, that we're going back to school. We're going to the Institute for Gremlin (laughs) Studies, and we're watching Gremlins 2. Yes. We are revisiting Dem Gremmins once again. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Although technically not a Christmas movie, I, I'm sure we'll get it's a fruitful not? discussion out. No, it's not. <laughs> okay. That was Christmas in New York. Whatever. Hey, I'm walking here. <laughs> no. <laughs> but I, th- I think you'll, I think you'll have a, a good time. A good time. Actually, does this make three okay. '90s movies in a row? Uh, yes. It's 1990. Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. We're so bad. I know. That's fine. Don't, don't don't worry. This show is on its last legs anyway. We got to just, oh. <laughs> just, just crank him out, John. Yeah. All right. So mean. So bad. You're bad. I know. I, know. <laughs> I am. Speaking of bad, I want to reveal the song of the decade, and that's what we're going to conclude with. Um, John, I'm not okay. going to tell you what it is. You're going to have to listen to it for the first time. But okay. <laughs> until then, thank you, everybody, for listening. And until next time, keep aspiring.